Normally, the third Sunday of January is given over to the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And in your bulletin, you have this wonderful insert. And when I looked at this little baby, I thought of my, my granddaughter, Josie. Everything reminds me of her. <laughs> Josie was born roughly about 2 a.m. And in the United States of America... With the full blessing of the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, if my daughter Kristen at 1 a.m., remember Jesse or Jesse, <laughs> Josie was born at 2 a.m., but at 1 a.m., if, if Kristen said, oh, these pains are, are just too much for me, I would like to have an abortion, it would be perfectly all right and have legal sanction in the United States of America, for that to happen. What kind of crazy country do we live in where that is an acceptable and norm? And if you talk to some people, you should rejoice and be glad in this. It's not that you accept it and tolerate it. You must rejoice with me in it. You have that in the homosexual agenda all the time. Maybe not so much in the abortion agenda, But the point is simply this. Here in the United States of America, we have got our priorities all mixed up. And I'll share a few illustrations of that uh, in our little brief time together. I remember uh, listening to the radio, and it was talking about a, uh, a rush at a fraternity at a major university here in the Detroit area. And what you had to do as you pledged and you wanted to qualify you had to cut off the paws of a cat. So you would get a a cleaver and chop off four paws, and you take it to the fraternity house, and now you are worthy to be part to carry these three Greek letters with your name. And I thought, boy, oh boy, if that is not sicko, I don't know what is. Now, I've had cats uh, almost my whole life, so I'm kind of fond that way. But if I had no cats, it's still weird. It's pathetic. It's degenerate. It's reprobate. It's socio and psychopathic. But yet, but yet, if we do that to a baby in the womb, we are to celebrate and rejoice because we have a country that, that has so much freedom that that includes even cutting a baby apart as in partial birth abortion and sending it into the trash can. And it's funny, our hearts go out to that kitten that lost all four of its paws, let alone its life. But we have been so desensitized to the sanctity of human life that an abortion, uh, sorry, but other people might have that burden, but I, it's not going to really upset me. Well, once a year, I think it should upset you. Hence, we have this right to life Sunday. Another illustration, or really continuing this one, is that concept I've shared before. You've heard it all your life. You can't legislate morality. Well, dear friend, you must legislate reality. Do you want to legislate immorality? Well, in this particular area, our government certainly has. And it's to the uh, sadness of our whole country that has so many things going for it that in this particular area, we are very, very, very sinful. Another argument that that you hear all the time is called reproductive health care or health care options. 
our reproductive health care options. And they put care and options as synonyms for abortion. Now, in the, in the abortion community, and listen closely how, how stupid this is. In the abortion community, when you are pregnant, you are either sick or you, you have a disease. That's why you throw up in the first trimester. Because pregnancy is a sickness or an illness. It's a disease. So if, if you are pregnant and you are sick, then we have a pill for that. It's called the morning after pill because you shouldn't have to go through a pregnancy that you don't want. And the name of that pill is the letter R, the letter U, and the digits 486. That, my friend, is mocking, mocking mankind. See, the letter R is basically the word A-R-E, R. And the letter U is the word Y-O-U, U. And the digit 4 is F-O-R. And to 86-something is to kill it. So RU486 basically says, are you for abortion? Are you for killing a baby in the womb? How sick, how sick are Americans that they take pride in that? Wow, wow, wow. So if you're sick, you can take a pill. But if you have a disease, if you have a disease, you might need surgery like a partial birth abortion, where the baby is cut up into pieces, a a little vacuum tube is stuck into the base of the skull, its brains are sucked out as a gelatinous goo, and then it's much more easy to get the remainder of the baby out. And that's what our country sanctions. In many cases, with a blessing, paid for by your tax dollar, by the way. How sad, how sad. And then, I mean, I could go on forever, but I'll just do three. This will be the last one. You hear all the time, a woman has a right to control her own body, or it's a decision between a woman and her physician. Man, you hear that all the time. Well, if, if a woman has control of her, old, her own body, why, why can't she be a prostitute? If she has control of her own body, why can't she be a drug addict? Or combine them both. Sell her body in prostitution for drug money, like crack cocaine or meth or something. Why not? Because she has control over her body. And when I illustrate it that way, you go, well, that, that's stupid. But it's not. It, it, see how illogical and immoral and hypocritical and sinful the abortion community is. Now, we have truth on our side. That's why you're giving me the liberty to say this. I've done it the third Sunday of January for as long as I can remember because we live in a society, in a country, where over 60 million babies, 60 million, fill up the whole state of California, kill everybody in it, refill the state of California, and kill everybody again. That's 60 million. That's a large number. That's a huge number. And we are so desensitized. We are so accustomed to the abortion agenda that we do not 
get riled up. And I'm not saying that we need to start a crusade, but once a year, once a year, dig your spiritual heels in and say, our world is wrong. Our country is really wrong in this one specific area. But it's a biggie. It's a biggie. And if you have caused another person to have an abortion, or you have chosen yourself to have one, there is great, great forgiveness in the blood of the cross, in the Lamb of God. And there is no sin outside the Savior's redemption. None whatsoever. And you can be made whole again through the merits of Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit. We always say these things together because as bad as our society is in reference to abortion, yet in reference to the cross, it's a forgivable sin. It's an easily forgivable sin because there's no sin a man can do that a God cannot forgive. And any number times zero equals zero. You might be a a sinner at the 100 degree level. So your 100 sins times zero equals zero. You might sin at the million level, but a million times zero equals zero. You might be a Google, the digit one followed by 100 zeros. That's what a Google is. Times zero is zero. Isn't it great to have a sinless substitute savior that can give life to the dead? Thank you for these few minutes. Now I'm going to pray and we'll transition to the upper room discourse. Dear Father in heaven, we want to thank you for an opportunity once again, not only to speak in behalf of the unborn, those who have been aborted, those who will be aborted, but we also want to thank you, Father, for life, regeneration. We want to thank you for hope beyond the grave. We want to thank you for being the God of forgiveness. In fact, that's your majestic title at Nehemiah chapter 9. But we also want to thank you for the upper room discourse, which is before us. And as once again, we make our way to scriptures, we want to thank you that it speaks clearly of your mind and your will. In order that, that is the work that we must do. And we'll pray now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. One of the joys of being an ordained minister is that I get to marry people to each other. These love-struck men and women And I've done it, of course, many, many times over the years of my ministry. I've done, uh, I guess, my fair share. And I've always been intrigued by the emotions that the bride-to-be brings to the rehearsal. The the men and the grooms-to-be, they're they're spaced out. They're just there. What do I do next? But but the brides-to-be... They have out their pad of paper, and they know what's going on, and it's it's really, really neat because, as you know, I'm kind of that way. Well, once upon a time, so here's a story. Once upon a time, there was a bride and a groom-to-be. They were at their wedding rehearsal, and it was kind of a confusing evening with the minister and who does what and who stands where, and it was just just confusing, and and the bride looked at... uh, her husband-to-be, and saw that he was crestfallen and he was discouraged and he was a little bit hopeless. So she said to him, honey, 
it, it's just real easy. I'll try to make it simple for you. Just remember three words. The first word is the word aisle, like you know, a center aisle. And we're going to be walking down a center aisle. So just, just remember the word aisle. And then when we get up to the platform, there's going to be a real fancy piece of pulpit furniture, which is called an altar, an altar. And we're going to be right by the altar. So just remember the center aisle and remember, you know, the altar. And, and remember, you know, we're together. It's, it is you and it is I and, and we're together. So if you just remember those three things, then everything will be happy. Well, that groom bolted out of the church never to return again. And when he was found, when he was found, people asked him what was going on. And he said, all I heard were her words. And her words were, I'll alter you. Thank you for laughing at an intellectual joke. <laughs> it's not A-I-S-L-E, but I apostrophe L-L. It's not alter A-L-T-A-R as a noun, but A-L-T-E-R as to change. So he heard his bossy wife-to-be, I'll alter you. And he wanted nothing about that. So that's the explanation if you didn't laugh. Also, when I do these weddings, normally and frequently, the, the bride will cry. The groom, no. Brides, yes. And in my own mind, and I make no judgment call, I wonder, are these tears of joy? Or are these tears like, what am I getting into? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a daddy's girl, and I hope my new husband is as wonderful as my dad. And, of course, everything in the wash comes out wonderful, perfect. It's just you know, get over that emotional hump of, of um, getting married. But probably the thing that, that satisfies me the most is, is that, that glory, and I use that word literally, that glory, that glory that a bride-to-be has. Um, she's been chaste, she's been virgin, she's been pure, she wears a white dress to symbolize that, and there is a, a, a godly glow, a God, godly countenance, a, a godly glory that is around her because she is deeply, deeply in love. So that idea of love and glory or glory and love, they, they go together in a, in a good wedding ceremony, a good marriage ceremony. But you know what? The idea of glory and love, glory and love, are also combined by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his upper room discourse. And that's where we're going to be for this morning. Because as you know, <clears throat> shortly before the Lord left this world, he took John chapters 13 to 17 to preach and proclaim what we call the upper room discourse. Again, this was done hours before his crucifixion on the cross. And since our Lord's words were good enough for him to share with the apostles, I'll be leaving you in a couple months. So I thought it'd be appropriate for me to share the upper room with you so that you might be spiritually prepared for Pastor Nathan Williams when he comes. So in other words, as we develop this short and brief series, every message will have two theological themes. 
two practical themes that Jesus wanted to share hours before he died. And I want you to have these in your soul as well. There'll be 14 of them, seven messages times two apiece. Simple math. But, but the, the concepts, the doctrine, the, the, the principles that are involved are revolutionary. For example, when we began last week, the two that you were to remember were humility and holiness. Humility and holiness. It seems as if when Jesus began the uproom discourse, he was very concerned that we as Christians for the rest of our lives would be humble people. Because humble people serve, not prideful people, but humble people serve. But you can't serve unless you're clean, you're spiritually clean. Because in one sense, cleanliness is next to spiritual godliness. So the first time we met, which was just last week, the first message of the series, humility and holiness were unbelievably important. Now, today, this morning, the two things that you should be aware of would be glory, as in you need to glorify God, and love, as in you need to love one another. So these are the two themes that Jesus develops next in the Upper Room Discourse. Let's not jettison, let's not set aside, let's not dump humility and holiness, but add to humility and holiness the concept of glorifying God and loving the brethren. So that's where we're going this morning, the concept of glory and love. And our passage is very short, just four verses, just four verses. First will be God's glory is in Christ's life. God's glory is in Christ's life. And we'll see that at verses 31 and 32, which is kind of a tongue twister in the English Bible, as we'll see in a few minutes. And secondly and lastly, man's love is in a Christian's heart. Man's love is in a Christian's heart. So we're going to be looking at God's glory and man's love, one in the life of Christ, one in your life. But the idea to carry on in the remaining days of your life would be to glorify God and to love the brethren, to love one another. So with that in mind, we have to do just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into John chapter 13 and verse 31. So what I'm saying now is just basically a little bit of a preamble because what we need to do is we got to get Judas out of the upper room. We have to get Judas away from the born-again people. Remember, and I'll say it again, Jesus washed Judas's feet, but Jesus did not let Judas have communion, have the Lord's Supper, have the Passover Seder, Because he's an unbeliever, he does not belong with the family of faith. So we have to get Judas out of the upper room, even though his feet were washed by Jesus. See, beloved, we are to do good unto all men, but especially to the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So what I'm going to do is just scoot through the opening couple paragraphs of John chapter 13 where we have an unbelievable combination of Judas and Satan. Judas and the devil. Let me just illustrate that, uh, not on the screen, but just listen to me. Verse number 2 of John chapter 13, this is the very beginning of the upper room discourse. Verse 2 says, during supper, not the communion service, but just the regular supper, 
the devil already put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. So at verse number two, you have the devil, you have Judas, and you have betrayal. Verse number 18, Old Testament quote, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And there Jesus said, quoting the book of Psalms, that around this table is a person who's going to lift up their heel against me. And just as a cowboy crushes a cigarette butt on the ground, so Judas wants to crush me, but I'll crush him first. But Judas, again, is seen at verse number 18 by way of an Old Testament um, prophetic utterance. And the idea here is not so much betrayal, but lift his heel against Verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, betray me. Jesus saying that at verse number 21, after the special expression, truly, truly, found only in John's gospel. Verse 26, so when Jesus had dipped the morsel, that is the pita bread, into the common pot, he took that and gave it to Judas. That's the King James sop or the morsel. Again, that's not the communion service. It's a way to illustrate Jesus being true as a friend to the end. So Jesus tore the pita bread, went into the common pot, and got some lamb and rice. And instead of putting it into his own mouth, Judas was to his side. John was on the other side. Jesus gave it to Judas as an act of friendship. You're going to betray a friend. And Judas took that. Again, that's not the communion service. That's part of the regular meal. And then at verse number 27, right after Judas swallowed the sop or the morsel, our Bible says at verse number 27, and after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, that is Judas. So we have the devil at verse number 2. We have Satan at verse number 27. At verse number 2, he betrays. Verse number 18, he lifts his heel against. Verse 21, he betrays. At verse number 2, Satan put into the heart of Judas... Verse 27, Satan entered into Judas. Again, he's just repeating himself so you don't miss it. So what basically happened was Judas left. Judas left. It didn't really register to too many people because Judas was the treasurer of the apostolic band. And during Passover, you want to be very generous with outsiders who have traveled hundreds of miles for the Passover feast. Interesting, Judas held the bag of money. He was the treasurer. But in the midst of the apostles, there was Matthew, a tax collector. If anybody knew money, it was Matthew. But Jesus said, Judas, you be, you be the treasurer. Matthew says, I have an MBA and a CPA. And you're meeting the treasurer, this guy who doesn't even, uh, yeah, that's just how it goes. That's how it is. So what happens now is we approached where we want to be at verse number 31. John is setting forth, in life, there's Satan and there's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's Judas and there's 11 apostles. One is going to betray the Lord. The other 11 want to glorify him. Verse number 30 ends, and it was night. And in, in John's writings, the great symbolism between light and night or light and darkness So when Judas left and it was night, that's just saying the darkness and the blackness of his soul and his life. But, of course, we walk in light. And, by the way, Jesus didn't go follow after him. Jesus didn't try to talk Judas out of that. 
the scripture had to be fulfilled. Plus, the believing community at this time is much more important than an apostate. So, with that lengthy head start, let's go into the Word of God itself, and we're going to be looking at God's glory in Christ's life. God's glory in Christ's life. And our application, of course, is to make sure that our lives glorify God. Our lives glorify Christ. So I'm going to be reading verse 31 and verse 32 of John chapter 13. God's glory is in Christ's life. And it's very, very awkward in a sense. You keep stumbling over the word glory. So it's not smooth in English, but I think it does speak volumes. So here's the Bible, verse number 31 of John 13. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Since there's a lot of glory going on in just two verses, five occurrences of glory in just two verses. So we're going to be focusing on the glory of God, but note its significance. Once the leaven is gone, once Judas is gone, once the darkness has been removed, now our Lord had this freedom in his soul, freedom in his spirit. And the first thing he wanted to talk about was the glory of God, the glory of God. That should be very important to all of us. If you read R.C. Sproul and a lot of the people in the Reformed community, everything's the glory of God. We who are evangelical and dispensational, we rejoice in the glory of God as well. But the point is simply this. Now that darkness has gone, the first thing out of our Lord's lips, and five times he mentions it, is glory as a noun, glorification as a past tense verb, or to be glorified. So that's actually what's going on. So as we look at verse number 31, as well as verse number 32, we want to look at the time and the truth and the treasure. So let's look at the time. Time, I mean, actually time during the evening. Verse 31, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now, N-O-W, now. Then as you look at the end of verse number 32, the end of verse number 32, the very last word is immediately. So our Lord says, now and immediately, and what he's basically saying is, I'm going to be dead within hours. When you woke up this morning, did you think that you were going to die by sunset? Probably not. It probably never entered your mind. But Jesus had entered his mind significantly so. So as soon as Satan's person, Judas, the personification of night, is out of the upper room, Jesus said, now and immediately, now and immediately, the Son of Man is glorified. And this Son of Man is taken out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a very, very messianic, very, very deistic in a sense that it's, it, it's the deity of Christ seen in the expression, the Son of Man. At Daniel chapter 9, at verses 9 and 10, God the Father is pictured as the Ancient of Days. And there's a river of fire flowing from the very throne of God. And there's myriads and myriads of angels. And there's myriads of those who want to serve him. I mean, that is like a real, real majestic, in heaven, awe-inspiring sight. It's called the Ancient of Days. Then at verses 13 and 14, up comes the Son of Man. 
And the Son of Man is introduced to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days looks at the Son of Man and says, To you should be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every language might serve you, that your dominion is everlasting and everlasting. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So when Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man and I am now glorified, he was probably thinking of Daniel chapter 7 when he is glorified. He's a chum with the Ancient of Days. And whatever the Father has, the Son has equally. It's not so much Jesus is a, is a man and he got tired and he wept. That's true. That's true. But in this context, it might be with the word glorify used five times. I'm the Son of Man out of the book of Daniel. And it's interesting as you read the, the Bible, glory and death are sometimes set side by side. Uh, remember John chapter 21 at verse number 19, Simon Peter is debating Jesus about the, the number of fish that were caught and other things. And then there was a discussion about the will of God for John's life versus the will of God for Peter's life. And then Jesus said, hey, time out, Peter. I'm going to show you by what death you will glorify God. That's a verbal quote of John twenty-one nineteen. I will signify or show you by what death you will glorify God. That's what's happening here at John chapter 13. He is glorified in his death. He's glorified in his cross work. He is glorified in the fact that he fulfills the Father's will as contained in the Old Testament prophecies. What a miraculous and majestic way to start after Judas has been excluded from the upper room. So the time is now. The time is immediately, which means I'm going to be dead way before you think. I'm going to catch you by surprise like big time. Then we move secondly into this idea of truth. Having left time, we move into truth. And verse number 31 has God is glorified in him. Verse 32, God is glorified in him. The end of verse number 32, in the future tense, God will also glorify him, or God is glorified in him, in himself. Again, kind of awkward, but it's kind of like almost parallel concepts, all almost a verbatim quote for each other. But basically, what Jesus is saying is, God the Father glorifies me, and I glorify God the Father by dying on a cross. In other words, when we see Jesus' death on the cross, we see the very glory of God. And we see the glory of Christ. Now, the world doesn't get it at all. Not at all. I remember as clear as a bell when I was a teenager and I was at Harmony House Records, which used to be a great big, you know, many, many stores. And I was furious that they were closed from noon to three. What is going on? I'm at Harmony House and the doors are locked. What's going on here? I hadn't had a clue. If you talked to me at age 17, I might have told you what Christmas was about. I had absolutely no concept at all of Good Friday and Easter. None whatsoever. 
None whatsoever. And I was 17 years old living in America, raised in middle-class Royal Oak. That's how dumb I was. My point is not my dumbness. <laughs> the point is mankind looks at the cross and either doesn't know anything about it or what's the big deal? Buddy, it's a big deal. It's the biggest or largest deal in the cosmos. And Jesus said, that's right. That's right. Because I glorify the Father. The Father glorifies me. You understand holiness. You understand love. You understand justice. You understand power. You understand faithfulness. You understand propitiation. You understand reconciliation. You understand redemption. You understand adoption. You understand imputation. And I can keep on going. But you will never understand any of those if you don't understand that Christ died the just for the unjust in order that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And that's the oft-quoted 1 Peter 3.18. And that's why God is so glorified in Christ's cross work. And Christ himself receives glory from the Father because of the very same thing. So we've looked at the time and the truth, and now some, some treasures that we can take with us by way of personal application. So personal application in reference to the, the glory of God, it's interesting theologically that every member of the Trinity sort of specializes in glory. In Ephesians 1.17, which is that great prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the Father of glory. You pray to the Father of glory at Ephesians 1.17. If you don't have time to read the entire Old Testament today, you don't want to read the whole Old Testament today, then just read one chapter, Acts 7. Acts 7. Because that long chapter, Stephen summarizes the entire history of Israel, and he begins with the quote, the God of glory appeared to Abraham the Father of glory, the God of glory. You ought to glorify God because your God is glorious. Jesus is full of glory. If the rulers of this world knew what they were doing, but they didn't, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but they did. At 1 Corinthians 2.9 out of the Greek text, the Lord of glory, what a majestic name for Jesus Christ. Then, with the Father and the Son baptized in glory, the Holy Spirit says, I want a piece of the action. The Spirit of glory rests on you at 1 Peter 4.14. So, you should be concerned about the glory of God because every person in the Holy Trinity is full of glory by majestic name. Now, the definition of Hebrew, or pardon me, the definition of glory, and I'm going to stick with the Hebrew rather than the Greek, <clears throat> the idea of, of, of glory in the Old Testament can be couched in a few ways. You've heard these before, but again, to be true to the text, the idea of glory in the Old Testament is the idea of something that is heavy, something that has a lot of weight, that is pounds, and therefore, it meant something or someone who was significant or important. And even to this day, we have that expression, he throws his weight around. 
That is out of the Hebrew Old Testament because weight meant glory. Weight meant significance. Weight meant importance. And the application to us is when people look at you, do they sense that God is important in your life? Is God weighty in your life? Is God significant in your life? Or will you cut anything you can do to have an excuse not to go to church? Any excuse whatsoever not to go to church? Um, Are you more enthusiastic um, about what's happening in your life than what's happening in the life of Christ, the life of the church? In other words... Do people sense out of the King James of Colossians 1.18 that in all things Christ might have the preeminence? Because if Christ is preeminent, then you are glorifying him. You are making him heavy and weighty and significant and important. The second concept of, of the Hebrew word is to, here it is, enhance one's reputation. It means basically to brag or to boast. Because if I glorify someone, I'm bragging and boasting of that. So I have joined that fraternity. I have joined that fraternity where I brag about my granddaughter, Josie. That's just how it is. And the idea to enhance God's reputation, especially with the concept of the name, the name, the name of God, means that we want to brag about and we want to boast about, we want to make large our great God. We get excited about the lions and the pistons and the red wings and the tigers, but let's get really excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get excited about the Bible. Let's get excited about an open door of new ministry. That should excite you because you glorify God when you enhance his reputation and his name. And then thirdly and lastly, the idea in the Old Testament of glory is to complete or fulfill God's will or work. To complete or fulfill God's will or work. And it basically comes down to this. Wow, you have changed the entire orientation of your life just because of God? That's amazing that you have totally changed the orientation of your life just because of God? Just because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Wow, I could never do that. But when you change the entire orientation of your life to complete and to fulfill his will and his work, God is glorified by definition. Make him heavy. Enhance his reputation Complete his will, and you will be glorifying God. Guaranteed from the scriptures themselves. Well, we've looked at God's glory is in Christ's life. Now, secondly and lastly, secondly and lastly, let's look at man's love that is in a Christian's heart. Man's love that is in a Christian's heart. And here we're going to be looking at verses 34 and 35. And some of you may have memorized these verses years and years ago because they are super good ones. Let me read these two verses for you. John chapter 13, verse 34 and verse 35. And just as glory occurred five times in the previous two verses, 
Now we're going to have love four times in these two verses, 34 and 35, and here's the Bible. A new commandment I give to you, 11 apostles, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's uh, a great, great verse, a great, great verse. And in this particular section, we have four things about love that should cause us to perk up our ears so that we might hear the words, and they're in red ink at verses 34 and 35 as our Lord develops this in the upper room. First of all, there is a new commandment. Verse 34 begins, a new commandment I give to you. And the word new here means it's fresh and it's vibrant. It's not old and stale. It is fresh and it's vibrant. And it's not a suggestion. It's a command, just like the Ten Commandments. Yes, in the Old Testament, we are to love God, Deuteronomy 6.5. We are to love our neighbors, Deuteronomy 10.19. Those two are the greatest commandment of Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. So we don't stop there. We want to add to what's there. That's the great base we have in the Old Testament at Deuteronomy 6 and 10 and Leviticus 19, 8, 18. But the new commandment is followed by a new comparison. And the new comparison is that you love one another. Here's the comparison. Even as or just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So now it's not so much loving, but, but the new comparison is you have to love one another as I have loved you. And just in context, I've loved you with humility because I've washed your feet. And I'm very concerned about sin in your life. And that's why I wash them and use the illustration out of Peter. So we've also talked about the glory of God. So, so the, the new comparison is I want you to love people with humility and with purity and with holiness, without reservation, without holding back. So the new commandment at the beginning of verse 34 is complemented by the new comparison at the middle of verse number 34. And now thirdly, we want to note a new characteristic at verse number 35. The new characteristic is this. By this all men will know that you are my disciples because or since or if you have love one for the other. So the distinguishing mark of Christian fellowship is this love for one another. And Simon Peter, who was in the upper room at that time, when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 1, in other words, Peter at 1 Peter 1, remembers what Jesus said at John chapter 13. And Peter says, I can do Jesus one better. I'm going to add the adverb fervent. Let's fervently love one another. That's even better, that we fervently love one another. In that same book, we fervently we mean build a roof over other people's sin. That's the idea. So it's not the red badge of courage that you read when you were in high school. The badge of Christian community and fellowship is this unbelievable love that becomes a backdrop for effective evangelism. I want to join that group. Sign me up. It's not like that in the world. I, I like what's happening in your life and in your church. Sign me up. If it were that easy... But that's the principle, that's the basis that we have, that we love one another and have that badge, that badge that we follow the Lord in sacrificial love, sacrificial love. 
And then by way of application, uh, which would be our new criterion, that is, we have a new commandment, a new comparison, a new characteristic. And the new criterion, and there's many ways that we could look at this because love is such an important part of the New Testament. But a, a part that I like in reference to love is, is a simple test, a simple test to see how we're loving as individuals. And what I go to initially is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. At 1 Corinthians chapter 13, from verse 4 to verse number 8, we have about 16 characteristics of love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking. You've heard it all your life. That's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. And there's about 16 characteristics. So that's Paul's description of love as he amplifies what Jesus said in the upper room about love. And maybe during those three years in Damascus, Jesus taught Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, some distinguishing features of love that ended up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's a speculation, but I like it because I made it up. No, it could be true. It could be true. That's reading between the lines with a sanctified eye. So the point is simply this. You have these characteristics of love at 1 Corinthians 13 that we should have in our lives as we live in community with other people and want to love them. So by way of application, what you need to do then is remove the word love and insert the word Jesus. And this is remarkable. What a beautiful portrait of Jesus in the four Gospels in one paragraph. Just listen. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind, Jesus is not envious, Jesus never boasted, Jesus was not proud, he was never rude, nor was he ever self-seeking, he was not easily angered, Jesus keeps no records of wrongs, Jesus does not rejoice in evil, but Christ always rejoices with the truth, Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, in fact, Jesus never fails. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful portrait of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, as the hands of the clock grind me into oblivion, here's the application. Here's the application. How well are you loving one another? Go to 1 Corinthians 13, remove the word love, remove the word Jesus, and I know you're following me, insert your first name. Insert your first name. That's the greatest application of love. Greg is patient. Greg is kind. Greg is not envious. Greg does not boast. Greg is not proud. Greg's not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. Greg keeps no record of wrongs. Greg does not delight in evil, but he always rejoices in the truth. Greg protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Greg never fails. I mean, who can stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus and his love? Who can stand shoulder to shoulder with God in his love? But make this a pursuit. Make it a goal. Make it a lifetime journey that you want to love like 1 Corinthians 13 because it follows Christ's example And in the upper room, he said, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. And I want you to love others as I have loved you. Wow. Let us pray. 
Father, thank you for the power of the word. Thank you for the power of truth. And thank you for this upper room discourse.